Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast, this is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with 30 Minutes of Express News on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Wednesday, the 1st of November. Coming up on the program, more on ESCOM's shocking financial results. There is growing worry over the impact of an austerity approach by government. Humanitarian groups condemn Israel's attack on a refugee camp. There's concern over making Grade R the new starting point for children and a new bill to fight gender-based violence. But there is much skepticism from leading players in the space. Well, it doesn't make for pretty reading, does it? ESCOM has unveiled its financial results and an increase in net loss after tax of 24 billion rand. Also more worrying, the energy availability factor plunging from 62% just over to 56.03%. I want to talk to Nick Headley, the founder of the Progress Playbook. It's a news and analysis platform focusing on policies and projects that are succeeding in driving sustainable development. He's a key voice in the electricity debate in South Africa. Nick, can you help us understand how ESCOM has arrived at this precarious financial situation, worse than many people thought it was, and are you surprised? Hi, Jeremy. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so it's, as we all know, it's been a kind of steady, slow, long decline. Um, But I think everyone expected bad results, but maybe not quite as bad as this. It was, it's pretty dire. Um, The biggest two issues are obviously the performance of ESCOM's coal fleet, which has been steadily deteriorating because um, there's not been enough capacity online, so they've been run extremely hard and not maintained, so it's almost inevitable that these very old coal plants would start deteriorating and breaking down more often. Uh, And more load jetting means less sales for ESCOM, so less revenue. Uh, The second reason is that Um, ESCOM still, despite all of the massive tariff increases that we've all been subjected to, still isn't making enough money to cover its costs. So its its tariffs are still not cost reflective. Um, And that's just not not enough to cover its costs, let alone ramp up maintenance to the levels needed. So basically, ESCOM's selling prices are still not actually high enough which is quite scary. Nick, it surely cannot continue if this trajectory remains. No. Um, so ESCOM, in its results, it forecast making a similar loss this year. Um, and it's normally quite sort of conservative, so it could become even worse than that. Uh, it's a completely unsustainable trajectory um, for a couple of reasons. It's spending a huge amount on running very, very expensive gas turbines to make up for uh, the coal plants. Municipalities aren't paying ESCOM, so they now owe ESCOM about 60 billion rand. Um, ESCOM had to fork out 72 billion rand to just to service its debts, which is, which is massive. Um, 
So it's very, very unsustainable path um, with no real clear fix or solve to it any on on the horizon. Um, and it all really, unfortunately, comes down to the fact that its tariffs aren't cost reflective. Nick, it also says or highlights the importance of uh, clean energy solutions. But once again, we're also behind the curve on that, are we not? Very, very far behind the curve. Um, we are, we've since 2015, haven't really added much new clean energy capacity. Um, unfortunately, our, our new build program was halted in 2015 and we haven't really caught up since. Um, we do have a tiny fleet of wind and solar connected to the grid and ESCOM's results showed that wind farms have reduced load shedding during the evening peak period by 1.5 stages on average and that's just with a, a very small existing fleet so if we did manage to scale it up we would make a big dent in in load shedding but we this things are moving far too slowly unfortunately Nick, one gets the impression, having watched those results being presented yesterday, that this is an organization that is simply thrashing around. Um, Maybe let's focus on the debt. Um, Municipal debt, uh, 58.5, 60 billion rand, obviously contributing to ESCOM's financial instability. Is there any way that or are there any steps that can be taken immediately to address this growing debt, which might just unthrottle the situation slightly? It's a very, very complicated one. Um, Municipalities are deeply indebted themselves, so they can't, a lot of them aren't actually even in a position to pay ESCOM back its debt. Then um, the government's obviously come to the party with a debt relief package for ESCOM, but it's also very limited in in what it can do because um, South Africa itself is on a very unsustainable fiscal trajectory. So there's not a hell of a lot more the government can do. Um, It could arguably offer a bit more debt relief, but no, there's, there's not really a very clear path out, which is the most concerning thing. They also outlined their recovery plans yesterday, and part of the process was to enhance generation performance and plant reliability. We've heard that before, but in the introduction to our conversation, I mentioned uh, the declining energy availability factor. Um, Again, there's a disconnect between the two and uh, concern that uh, the plans to enhance that generation performance are simply not going to happen or going to be very difficult to implement. Yeah, um, so I think there's one positive thing that wasn't in the results, but last week ESCOM's energy availability availability factor increased for the week to above 60% for the first time this year. Um, So there is some evidence that things are moving in the right direction, but obviously it's a very precarious state. Um, The plants could trip at any time. They're old and haven't been looked after. And there's also not much evidence that maintenance has been ramped up to the sort of levels where it needs to be. Mm. So that, again, will need significant investment. And the question is, where will the money come from? Nick, I wish I could say I enjoyed talking to you today, but um, (laughs) I, I I need to find another word. Founder of the Progress Playbook, thank you very much indeed. Nick Hedley. You're listening to Moneyweb at Midday. 
All right, we're in mini-budget week, and the Federation of Unions of South Africa is worried, it says, about the introduction of austerity measures by government, saying they must only be implemented where where they cut unnecessary expenditure. All well and good, but how do you do that? With us now, Ashley Benjamin, Deputy General Secretary at FEDUSA. And first of all, what impact will austerity measures have on your members? Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, as to do so, we are certainly opposed to any austerity measures by government. Uh, it is not good for, for service delivery, it's not good for development, and also not in the interest of jobs. We are sitting with quite a high unemployment rate in our country, and austerity measures will worsen the, the, the crisis. Uh, if we look at austerity measures, it's normally the poorest of the poor that's affected negatively. And key government departments like Home Affairs and others will definitely feel the brunt of it. And that is key departments that deliver services to the public. We have a crime problem in this country. It's getting out of control. So further austerity measures will will make crime even uh, a bigger problem in our society. So we need more policemen on the streets. We need more nurses to deal with our crisis in our government hospitals and clinics. So uh, austerity measures is mm. negative. It is not in the interest of right. of development and a, and, a, and a caring society. Ashley Benjamin, of course, the counter to your argument that government will put forward is that they have no choice but to tighten the belt and that they simply don't have the money. Well, government must find the money. They, they, they're so much malfeasance and uh, incompetent in government. We, we are saying that they must also look at and other uh, expenditure cuts. I mean, this, this cabinet is bloated. I mean, we don't need all those ministers and deputy ministers. Uh, uh, we can save quite a lot of money if they, they, they cut. And they must also look at, at other non-critical expenditure, and, and those budgets can be directed towards the real budget by strengthening uh, the public service, filling a vacant post, dealing with teacher salaries and, and all other pay progression issues that they uh, have agreed with the public service unions. So we, we say in government has money and they must find the money and reallocate the resources so that uh, uh, we can uh, create a better society. I don't think they spend our money wisely that the government uh, receives from taxpayers. Do you feel that the public service is unfairly picked on by government? Oh, definitely. Definitely it's unfairly picked on. And the reason for that is that uh, government has implemented a number of austerity measures over a number of years. So it's a situation, again, of government talking left, but walking right. So you will see that government announced that they can uh, uh, employ 10,000 more policemen on the streets, but provincial government are actually reducing staff through austerity measures. So there is actually at the downscale of, of, of post in the public service instead of increasing the staff that's so desperately needed in, in the public service, in particular your key pillars of society, mm. education, health, police, you know, to deal with crime. Those those, those are critical services and, 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 and that is where the uh, we feel the brunt of, of austerity measures. And we know, though, that that's not going to happen, the suggestions that you've just made. So that either puts you on a collision course with government or you need to meet them halfway. Yeah, we are always open for any uh, discussion with government. And I think, uh, as you would know, uh, there is a, a social dialogue forum, which is called NEDLEC, 
National Economic Development and Labor Council, whereby the social partners uh, can sit around the table and, and, and plot a way forward that, that can create a better society, you know, dealing with these things. Like we are saying as well, the issue of VAT, we are opposed to, to increase of, of, of VAT because that hurts the poor and not the rich. Uh, we also would like to see a, a reduction of VAT uh, on, on basic food or scrapping of, of VAT on certain staple food or, or, or products that, 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 that the South Africans buy on a daily basis. Uh, the fuel levy, it's another burden on already indebted workers and, and many workers spend a significant amount of, of their income on just uh, commuting to work and back. And, and we're saying that uh, they must now seriously redress the current fuel levy system so that there's more relief uh, coming for workers, you know, to uh, uh, just to, to commute to work and back. And also our disgusting uh, state-owned enterprises uh, the ones currently under President Transnet. I mean, we do believe the government must must put a cash injection again, but uh, subject to very, very strict conditions so that we don't see a repeat of bailouts in the past and the money just simply disappear. Yeah. Transnet is a key enabler for economic development, job creation, and many respects supporting poor communities. It cannot fail but it cannot be business as usual. That's the view of the Federation of Unions of South Africa. Ashley Benjamin is the Deputy General Secretary. Thank you very much for joining me. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. The Portfolio Committee on Basic Education agreeing to the Basic Education Laws Amendment Bill, it's better known as the Bella Bill, that if adopted makes Grade R the new compulsory school starting age and penalties for parents who do not ensure that their children are at school. Bongiwi Gagabe is chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Basic Education and she claims there is confusion and misleading information on this piece of legislation. She joins us now. So what is the misleading information? Look, we are finished with the with the Bella Bill process as the National Assembly. I'm sure you are aware. And after that, there was a statement which we don't know from where, but a statement on WhatsApp messages that is doing rounds. One, doing a misconception about the powers that are given to the head of departments of the schools, but also saying this bill is about teaching children sex at schools. So those are the things that were not part of the bill, but you can see there is a concerted effort to move people away to the facts of what the bill is all about, to put a perception that says, no, this bill is about destroying children in the public schools. Who do you believe is behind it? I cannot say really who is behind it, because one, we are a multi-party committee. There were differences from ourselves first. So, of course, when there are differences for, from our first, there will be differences for, from our followers as well. But also because of the sector that we are in, it's a very big sector. You've got all types of different interests in it. So it is one of us in the sector. It's amongst ourselves or it's our followers that is deliberately uh, mischievous about the outcomes of the National Assembly. And if this disinformation continues, what do you think the impact will be on its implementation? No, as soon as we pick it up, fortunately, we are putting a statement. Like, I'm sure you are calling me because you've seen our statement. So we are going to put a contrary statement that is right. 
it cannot have a, a, a negative impact if we respond to it. And the reality of the matter is that people will follow what is happening, uh, what is on the national space and what is happening. Many people are aware that the bill is passed. Therefore, you can't do anything about it at a national assembly level. The bill is at NCOP level and people understand. So whether you are trying to distract us from this and there would be a concerted effort to make sure we don't move forward, we are going to go forward. And when the implementation, that is after now the president has signed, when the impl- implementation must happen, it is going to happen. So as for the negative impact, really, we are not um, that much worried because the facts are there and we are correcting every time we see anything mischievous. We are at right. the spot correcting it at a, at a public space. All right, Chair, let's look at some of the aspects of implementation if we can. One of them is uh, making grade R the new compulsory school starting age. Um, how is that going to be enforced? It, it is happening in many schools anyway now. It's just that now you need to make it official that all the schools in South Africa must start to have grade R compulsory. It can be a difficult process. What schools must do, it will be the issues of administration, whether you've got enough classes for that. If you don't have then you must make arrangements for that, whether you've got extra personnel to look into it, and that must happen. But of course, as we are proceeding with this field, there should be plans in place for those schools that do not have great art in their schools. It has been pointed out that the Department of Basic Education doesn't have the necessary funds to implement mandatory grade R for pupils. So it's all very well in having it in the bill, but the implementation and the enforcement is going to be very difficult. You have to concede that. No, actually, the issues of the funds, let's also correct that. You know, when we dealt with this bill, part of the things we had as the committee was that they must come and tell us what the implementation of this bill, bill what is this costing and they came to the committee they told us uh, on this costing and of course they said they are engaging treasury the treasury um, is aware that the department is engaging in this and the department would not have gone out without agreeing with treasury on the cost implications of the bill like i'm saying this is administrative so when you start to kick in the issue of grade are being compulsory obvious you know what is required and those it's, it's it's what the administration will have to deal with all right As one, one of here, the other I aspects chairperson let's look at one of the other aspects is in uh, enforcing penalties on parents who don't ensure that their children are in school or arrive on time again uh, i understand why it's been implemented but again it's going to be very difficult to enforce isn't it it's going to be difficult depending on circumstances but I think there is an agreement that it must be enforced. We need to get a culture that says all our children must be in the classroom. And there needs to be a punishment for that. We can't be a lawless country. Parents know exactly that there will be law like that. And I'm saying this knowing very well we have been doing public hearings and there are different reasons why parents are not staying with their children and why they would look into, into the fact. But they will have to, if the parents are in, are in open areas and they are leaving children alone in rural areas, they will have uh, to make plans that their children are in, in, are in the classrooms. Chairperson, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Money Web at Midday.
Overnight, humanitarian groups have condemned Israel's attack on the Jabalia refugee camp, saying the air raid should be, and I quote, a wake-up call to world leaders to secure a ceasefire in Gaza. Joining us now is the Executive Director of the Afro-Middle East Centre, Naim Jinnah. A very warm welcome to you. Understandably, anger is growing over this attack, and one senses this is a key turning point in terms of global perception. Well, it's a key turning point, certainly in terms of how uh, people are addressing it. It doesn't seem to be a a big turning point in the UN Security Council, um, and certainly not for the United States, which which is a critical player in this. So um, while the anger increases among even UN staff, um, humanitarian organizations, I mean, we're hearing of UN uh, human rights officials resigning, for example, um, until the United States takes a stronger position, um, Israel is basically given carte blanche to continue. And that's unlikely to happen in the short term? Not in the short term, no. But there are also growing uh, feelings of, 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 of anger around uh, the way in which this is playing out as far as Israel is concerned from constituencies within America. So perhaps, uh, perhaps we're also heading towards something of a pivot there. Yes, and I think um, certainly the most kind of uh, spectacular, if you like, uh, protests in, in the United States have been those by Jewish Voices for Peace, uh, taking over um, this, uh, the station in, in New York and getting arrested and uh, uh, going on to the, the capital, etc. Uh, but uh, large kind of protests within the U.S., um, not just, uh, if I might use the term, the traditional kind of Palestinian solidarity groups, but beyond that, human rights organizations, etc. Um, and slowly, uh, lawmakers coming out on that as well. The other angle, of course, uh, um, is that within Israel itself, uh, particularly with regards to the captives that are being held in Gaza, uh, families of those captives um, are, are very upset, lots of protests, um, saying all kinds of nasty things about the government, uh, but the government remaining firm on on moving ahead. Mm. And uh, a number of captives apparently over the past 24 hours uh, have been killed in, in the airstrike. Naim Jinnah, the tragedy of all of this, of course, is that both Israel and Hamas are seemingly ignoring what would be the basic rules of warfare. Well, that, that I mean, certainly from, uh, from the perspective of Hamas and the other groups in Gaza, that's um, that is an argument that could be made about um, certainly the 7th and 8th of October. Um, since then, I think that it's become more kind of defensive from their side, and the assault has been from Israel on, on Gaza. But um, in terms of scale, uh, Israel's assault is way out of proportion. I mean, the bombing of hospitals, churches, mosques, uh, UNRWA, UN uh, uh, shelters, etc., uh, and this is what has has caused the kind of uh, uproar with the human rights organizations, the humanitarian organizations, mm-hmm. and then the collective punishment of cutting off fuel and um, uh, electricity, water, etc. Um, collective punishment, um, and that that's over three uh, a three week period. Aside from statements from Israel saying that they want to destroy Hamas and its infrastructure, we still don't know what the plan is from that country post any conflict. No, we don't. Um, I mean, there, there's there's uh, talk from certain sections of uh, 
uh, a new kind of occupation of at least half of uh, Gaza. Um, that that really is not plausible. There's talk of uh, imposing the Palestinian Authority onto Gaza. Um, that will actually backfire spectacularly because the Palestinian Authority, which has very little legitimacy now, will lose all legitimacy uh, then. Um, so there, there isn't really a plan for what happens uh, the day after, assuming that there will be a day after, because the notion that they would be able to destroy Hamas um, in Gaza itself is a problematic one and somewhat unrealistic. Just a short answer to, the, to this one. Uh, the other tragedy, of course, is that it seems to be shaping up now for a wider Middle East conflict. And, and again, the, the consequences there are almost too awful to contemplate. Yes, um, most likely uh, Lebanon. I don't think that many other countries will be involved, but it's also spreading to Iraq and there was a rocket yesterday from Yemen. I'm Jenna. Thank you very much from the Afro Middle East Center. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Back home and all political parties have passed the gender-based violence and femicide bill that will establish a national council to oversee and coordinate government's effort to combat such crimes. But here's the question. How much real difference is this going to make? Advocate Ntabi Singh Sepanya Mokhale is with us from the Commission for Gender Equality. And is this a development that should be welcomed? Yes, absolutely. It is a development to be welcomed under normal circumstances. However, in South Africa, we have had an experience of all of these good grand ideas that translate to not because there isn't any funding allocated. If funding is allocated, funding then goes to all the frills and not the actual work. That's where my concern is. So what type of funding advocate is needed then? I'm not sure what type of funding is needed. I'll tell you why I say so. Because the the council in its nature is unfortunately a duplication of what exists already. One of the things that the council is going to do is to monitor duty bearers, for a lack of a better phrase, to ensure that they are more efficient and effective in combating and preventing violence against women and femicide. That is already in place. That is the place of Parliament to do. And we should be asking a a question, why is Parliament failing to hold duty bearers accountable? Secondly, Council is going to be based on 51% of civil society organizations. And when you look at that 51%, are we then saying that over and above, the reporting and accountability measures that are in place that the constitution has actually put in place, they will now go to this council that is 51% civil society and 49% government to yet again go and report or go and account. So it's unclear there. And then the third thing is this council is asking for money so that they're able to do certain work, including this 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 overseeing of duty bearers that they're doing. What you call the uh, Department of Social Development is already dispensing huge. I think it's about three or five billion. I'm not sure. Minister Lindwe Zulu knows uh, has got the actual figure, but it's a, it's billions that are going towards the same organisation who are now saying, "Give us the money so that." We monitor what Parliament Mm. is doing or is supposed to be doing. It's a conundrum.
But so, it's coming from a good place. If I'm hearing you correctly, uh, you're saying coming from a good place, but essentially Parliament is abrogating its responsibility and it's simply a problem that is being wrapped up in more red tape. A problem that's being wrapped up in more tape and or oh, Parliament does not even understand what the intricacies of all of this mean. You know, so it was almost like you wanting to be politically correct, that you are not the one who stands up and say, but, 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 because it is the issue of gender-based violence and femicide. I think that's the one reason. The second reason I, 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 I of my opinion is that maybe because it is an outcome of that 2018 summit after so much happened in our country after so so much violence happened uh, the presidency in particular is under pressure to be seen to be responsive to the high levels of violence but the question then is is this the correct measure to respond I'm just wondering, Advocate, if the effectiveness of this council then is possibly going to be measured on who sits on it and the work and the recommendations that they make. Surely it all hinges on that. It does to some extent, but you must remember the people who are going to sit on it are both referees and players. All of them have got NGOs. So somebody is going to be pulling them out of the 51% is going to be made up of people who are running organized civil society organizations in this sector and the same people are the ones who are going to be sitting on it and say this is right this is wrong at face value it makes sense they are the experts they are within the environment but council also is also going to be given funding to disperse to civil society organizations so that they continue to do the work now my question would be would they be would they have a sufficient integrity to put their own civil society organizations at the back of the queue and give to those that are struggling in the rural areas, in the townships, in all other areas where there is high levels of violence and femicide against women? Would they have that integrity to do that? Or we are creating a body where you're going to have civil society organization now double deep being player and referee, mm. and then standing up to point fingers and say government is not doing enough. And government would have given them the money because government wants to be seen to be responding to the high levels of violence and femicide in the country. Thank you very much indeed for a very honest assessment, Advocate Ntabi Singh uh, Sipanya Mokhali from the Commission for Gender Equality. And other stories on our radar as we bring the program to a close. The Springbok rugby captain, Sia Kolisi, says in his words, the country should try and bottle the feeling of togetherness after the Rugby World Cup victory, which has brought the nation together. And the cost of repairs to the Kosili power stations units 1, 2 and 3 now stands at 700 million rand. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.